Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is a board-certified neurologist and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He serves as the medical advisor for Dr. Oz's show and Men's Health, and is an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He's a recipient of numerous awards, including the Lunas Pauling Award for his innovative approaches to neurological disease and disorder. He's been published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals and is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by several medical institutions such as Columbia University, New York University, and Harvard University. He's a five-time New York Times best-selling author, and his 2013 bestseller book, Grain Brain, has more than 1.5 million copies in print right now as we speak and has been published in multiple languages and is available in over 20 countries across the globe. Grain Brain kickstarted a revolution and empowers its readers to take control of their health to achieve optimum wellness for lifelong vitality. Since its publication, Grain Brain has received the number one on a bestseller list, including New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome, and thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today, sir. Uh, Montel, it's it's great, and I, I, I'm going to say right off the bat that... Uh, you know, we've known each other, you and I, for probably around 15 years. It's really good to see you again. Absolutely, sir. You know what I'm saying? Let's not date us, uh, ourselves, but, you know, it's been longer than that, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, I, I try to be kind. <laughs> yeah, no, you're being really kind, sir. I tell you, you look great. You look like you did 25 years ago, 20 oh years ago. Oh, my gosh. It's been that long. Jeez. It's been that long, my friend. We we uh, think we're circling around each other mm, right around 2000. Oh, my gosh. You know, you 2001, go. 2003. Yeah, but it's good. I'm, I'm glad you have done so well and your great success, especially with your best-selling book, Grain Brain. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Tell us a little bit about the book first. Well, this is a book that was an outgrowth of what I was doing in my clinical practice. You know, I was uh, being, this was years ago, I, I was very... I think um, having a tough time with the fact that I was kind of mopping up the disasters, you know, really dealing with people who are having really devastating brain issues. And we were there just treating symptoms. And that's what I did as a neurologist. And I really felt like it was treating the smoke while I was ignoring the fire. So I set about to try to figure out, well, what's underlying these issues, these brain disorders like uh, dementia, for example, MS, and began to realize that, you know, it, a lot of it had to do with inflammation. And a lot of inflammation has to do with our lifestyle choices. And back in those days, the idea that, you know, the foods that we ate, the amount of sleep we got, our exercise, our stress levels, uh, that that could play a role in the destiny of our brains. I think really not a lot of people were willing to embrace that. My training was simply write prescriptions for drugs, next patient. And I'm, I mean, I really made that my, my reason to be. My purpose in life is to try to uncover what's going on uh, that brings people to the place of disease and even the notion of preventive medicine as it relates to the brain, as it relates to neurological disease. And realize that, for example, uh, things like sugar, simple sugar, uh, devastating as it relates to the brain, as it relates to the heart as it increases our risk for cancer and diabetes. You know, nowadays people talk about that. It's pretty common knowledge. But back then uh, there was an awful lot of pushback, but that's okay. You know, it's always good to rock the boat a little bit. 
But Doc, you know, one of the things that really is has thrown me, I, I, I think a book like yours, Grain Brain, is, is so much needed right now, especially because we've gotten so trapped in this whole world of pharmaceuticals that, you know, I think in some ways the medical community doesn't want to look beyond that. They want to try to figure out how do we solve a problem at the end rather than how do we prevent a problem to begin with. But when you come up with something like this, which I, I want to call almost transformative, I mean, this is a transformative thought process to healthcare, And we know what happens in the medical community with transformative ideas. It's met with the most vehement and adamant resistance. I've seen a couple of interviews that you've done and noticed, um, you know, some of the people that are on those interviews growing names that you want. How about what the University of So-and-so said? How about what the University of So-and-so said? As if those people were the authorities, number one, but number two, trying to almost like throw, you know, a, a rock at your glass building to say, no, you can't be right because these other guys didn't believe that. So how can you be right? Have you been met? You've been met with quite a lot of resistance and pushback. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I mean, if not, then you roll over and play dead, you know, and uh, it, you have to challenge the status quo. Ronald Reagan said, famously, that status quo is a Latin term, meaning the mess we're in. So you really have to, whether you're right or wrong, you have to challenge status quo. Otherwise, we make no progress. And, you know, to your point about uh, being challenged over the years, yeah, that's for sure. And uh, I'm not sure you saw a link I sent you earlier, but I sent you a link of a, an interview I did on the CBS morning show where uh, my views about sugar, the challenge to me was, we reached out, doctor, to the sugar industry, and they told us that sugar is fine in moderation. That, that I did see that, and that really bothered me quite a bit because it's kind of crazy. It's like, you know, I'm, I've been working on multiple initiatives in the last 10 years that are transformative initiatives in science. I, I work in you know, the field of neuromodulation. Um, there's been such incredible pushback to neuromodulation in some ways, though we've accepted it when it can be an implantable, invasive device, but we won't pay attention to the same technique when it's not implantable, not invasive. Um, I'm working right now on a project um, involved with um, a protocol that has now been, you know, achieved evidentiary medicine status and has literally been touted as one of the only cures in existence right now for PTSD. Nine out of every 10 people who go through this protocol remit all symptoms of PTSD in as little as five hours without any pharmaceuticals. But this has been met with some of the most egregious and vehement pushback from you know the medical community that has turned PTSD into a cottage industry. And yeah, I, I hear you. Know, you. And you know, when we look at the data, for example, uh, as it relates to PTSD with respect to psychedelics, that data is profound. And these people, are, as you well know, are suffering. Uh, I remember years ago, you were very much dedicated to Vietnam veterans uh, in some of your outreach. And these are people who are suffering. And now we know that there are validated studies that look at various types of interventions that could be helpful. But the problem is, and it shouldn't be a problem, they challenge the mainstream approaches of simply uh, medicating these people into oblivion. And that, that's not an answer. And, you know, um, I think one of the, the biggest issues that we called out uh, in Grain Brain and in my subsequent books was that our lifestyle choices matter a whole heck of a lot 
in terms of charting our destiny, in my case, the brain's destiny. And I think that COVID has really called that out. When we see who's having uh, overall a bad outcome with respect to COVID, it's the people who are have made bad lifestyle choices, like becoming obese, type 2 diabetic, hypertensive, coronary artery disease, all of those things that paved the way for a bad outcome are generally related to previously making bad lifestyle choices. So it became very evident uh, through the lens of COVID that what we decide to do matters a whole heck of a lot in terms of charting our health uh, destiny. And the mission that you and I have adopted is one of empowerment. In other words, giving people at least the information so then they can make or refuse to make those choices. I know, and the choices are are in some ways so simple and just right there in front of you. I mean, exactly. I, 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 you brought it up. You talked about the the idea of sugar. People in this this country do not understand that when you say sugar, I think in in the the, the individual's brain they think, oh, I'm uh, I don't take that much sugar, but they don't even realize that what we've done behind the scenes secretively to the American food supply has been literally insane. The amount of sugar that they add to milk, sugar that they add to bread, sugar that's added to every single thing. You know, I, I saw this, I was on a, I took a flight to uh, Israel, um, it's about a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, I was going through the little uh, menu of movies that you could watch. And there was a very interesting documentary that was done by, and an Israeli production company that really never aired in the United States, but it just aired, you know, overseas. And it was, a, and it was talking about the fact that, you know, and a couple of times in the documentary, they were saying that America literally has pushed, or they pointed at us, has pushed sugar down the world's throat. And they took out a can of Coke and they talked about the can of Coca-Cola that you could get back in 1970 and the can of Coke that you could get in 1990. Can of Coke in 1970, I think, had something like 12 or 13 grams, teaspoons of sugar. The one in 1990 had something like 19 to 20 grams of sugar. It it just the amount of sugar that we add to everything. And I think importantly, it's not just the sugar, but it's the type of sugar. So uh, the the addition uh, into the sweetening of the American foods, uh, there are, you know, about 60 to 70 percent of the three million foods sold in America's grocery stores have added sweetener because we find sweet appealing. There's nothing uh, unusual about that. Sweet used to tell us to eat the food because it meant it was safe. A sweet food was never a dangerous food. Uh, but the, and also allowed us to make body fat so we could survive during times of caloric scarcity. Now, of course, there's this uh, evolutionary environmental mismatch whereby there's plenty of calories, plenty of sugar. But, you know, people talk about the type of sugar and what we're seeing more and more of in terms of what is being added to our food these days is fructose in the form of regular table sugar, which is 50% fructose, or an even higher level of fructose as is found in high fructose corn syrup used aggressively for two important reasons. Number one, it is very sweet, uh, sweeter than regular table sugar. And number two, it's cheap. It's cheap as all get out. And uh, so we find high fructose corn syrup giving us fructose, which though it doesn't elevate our blood sugar acutely or solicit an insulin response acutely, it is profoundly at the heart 
of our metabolic issues. It is the fructose, make no mistake about it, that leads to the production of things like uric acid, that then leads to type 2 diabetes, obesity, dyslipidemia, problems with our cholesterol, uh, and even challenges our immune function. So we should definitely call it out for what it is and recognize that the biggest issue that challenges human health today is the mismatch between what our genes, our DNA is expecting and the signals that we are giving our DNA in terms of our food choices and other aspects of our lifestyle. And when you talk about fructose, I'll go back to that for a second, but is that not a chemical that honestly the body does not even really recognize to be able to digest completely? No, we, our bodies absolutely recognize fructose. It's a powerful signal. When you consume fructose, it's telling your body that winter is coming. It says, stop. Uh, it says, make fat and stop using fat. Store it away, make fat and store it away and become insulin resistant because we want to increase our body's fat stores. Because, you know, in, in the day uh, when you would eat fruit, hence get fructose, it was in the late summer and in the early fall, which signaled our bodies that winter was coming. So those of us who made more fat with fructose ended up surviving and passing on the genes that really facilitate that whole pathway that interestingly we now understand filters through a chemical called uric acid. You know, we've always thought of uric acid in terms of gout or kidney stones. That's why your doctor might check your uric acid, but it turns out it's far more important than a metabolic waste product. Uric acid is a signal for us and other primates to, to make fat. So, we really ought to know our uric acids and recognize that two things contribute to elevating uric acid. Fructose, uh, basically uh, in the form that we get it so commonly today, high fructose corn syrup and other forms, uh, and something called purines. Purines are found in organ meats and uh, concentrated in foods like anchovies and sardines, less important these days than fructose. And look, uh, fructose in the form of Organic apple juice, 100% organic orange juice from Florida, it's fructose. Your body doesn't know where you got it, but when it sees it, it responds by saying, oh, winter's coming, I'm going to make this person fat so he or she will survive. But the problem is we don't need this extra body fat. It's contributing to our, our neurologic issues, cardiovascular issues, and even cancer. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, in, in uh, the grain brain, you talk about other dietary things that we, we consume that are just as dangerous as fructose, right? Like wheat and other stuff. Yeah. Well, what we really, you know, the, the two main pillars that that book was built upon are first the, the, the threatening effects of simple carbohydrates and sugar on the brain. And really, let's be clear, it's the entire body. To segregate out the brain is a little unfair. It's the heart, the immune system, it's diabetes, it's cancer. The other thing we looked at was gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. And uh, at the time we talked about it, everybody says, oh, Dr. Perlmutter says that gluten causes Alzheimer's. Never said that. I simply said, you know, consuming gluten increases inflammation in the body. We know that inflammation is a cornerstone player in things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, MS, other autoimmune conditions. We should be thinking about this. Well, you know, since Grain Brain was written, now we've understood the mechanism whereby gluten is so threatening to the brain and to the rest of the body. 
And it has to do with the role of gluten and specifically a subpart of gluten called alpha-gliadin that threatens the integrity of the gut lining. Now, Montel, why in the world am I having a conversation about the gut lining as we're talking about the brain? Because it turns out that the integrity of the gut lining plays a powerful role in regulating inflammation throughout the entire body. When that gut lining is compromised and we have what's called a leaky gut, then things within the gut get into the systemic circulation and challenge it. And when the immune system is challenged like that, it spits out these inflammatory chemicals that people are now knowing about called cytokines. People know about them now in the context of COVID vis-a-vis the cytokine storm. But make no mistake about it, we've known about cytokines for a long time, not in the context of the cytokine storm, which is a sudden explosion of these chemicals seen with COVID, but the smoldering low-grade elevation of cytokines that is associated with Alzheimer's disease, yes, Parkinson's, MS, other autoimmune conditions, uh, autism, for example. So we've got to rein in not just the explosion of cytokines that occurs with COVID, but this chronic elevation of cytokines that occurs when getting back to the gut, when the gut is threatened. So gluten threatens the integrity of the gut lining and augments inflammation in the human body. When we threaten our gut bacteria, the microbiome, same thing happens. It is the job of the gut bacteria to maintain that integrity of the gut lining. So uh, antibiotics, for example, non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, acid-blocking drugs that people take left, right, and center when they don't tolerate a certain food. You see the commercials threaten the gut lining. And now the research shows, for example, a correlation between taking acid-blocking drugs that are over-the-counter, for crying out loud, and risk for stroke and dementia through the mechanism of changing our gut bacteria. And now people who are concerned about gluten, gluten is almost in every processed food, is it not? It's added to a lot of processed food, that's for sure. So you have to be a careful consumer. And, you know, uh, in the day when Grain Brain came out, people said, well, uh, the only people who have to worry about gluten are people who have celiac disease. Well, that's Mm -hmm. 1.2 to 1.8% of the population. And that's even in and of itself, that's not an insignificant number globally. But since then, we've, we've learned that there are a large number of individuals who have what is called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, meaning they're going to have issues related to gluten, even though they don't have this uh, genetic autoimmune condition called celiac disease. And that may be 60 to 70% of the population. And that uh, clinical entity has been described in the Journal of the American Medical Association. when we talked about it uh, back when Grain Brain was written, the, the notion of non-celiac gluten sensitivity was already well established in Europe, but hadn't really gained traction here in America. So we've continued to describe the science, put the science out. But now we see really terrific researchers like uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard making it very clear that gluten affects everybody in terms of gut permeability. I think one of our biggest uh, efforts should be directed at maintaining our gut wall integrity. That's our most important first line of defense 
as it relates to our immune system. We now know that there are correlations between changes in the gut bacteria in terms of bad outcome with COVID. Why might that be? Because again, the gut bacteria are regulating our immune responsiveness. Believe it or not, our gut bacteria also playing a role in terms of regulating the response of our DNA. What I just said, think about, is that our gut bacteria are to some degree controlling the expression of our life code, of our DNA, that gift that we inherit from mom and dad and and from everyone who came before us, being uh, controlled to a certain degree by the gut bacteria, by the bacteria that live within us, that we need to nurture by feeding them appropriately and not challenging them with chlorinated water, with glyphosate sprayed on our foods, uh, with uh, antibiotic given so liberally these days. We have to really uh, cater to our gut bacteria because they are pulling the strings in terms of our gene expression. Well, I mean, but this is knowledge that I, I can tell you, um, and I know grain brain is unique in itself with a lot of the things that you talk about in there, but there are a lot of people out down for the last 10, 15 years have been doing, you know, lectures and speaking and again, cottage industry made out of this, trying to help people least navigate, you know, their dietary choices. Yet the industry that provides us with food doesn't listen. Exactly right. In fact, we just watched the uh, 2020 uh, gov- U.S. government uh, dietary food and uh, dietary and food recommendations be released, and those unfortunately hang around for five years. And this time around, I think it was so obvious how industry influenced these dietary recommendations for America, in that still saying that it's perfectly cool to have 10% of your calories come from simple sugars, despite what the science is telling us. There were countless. Uh, researchers and clinicians who sent information into the FDA uh, to influence these uh, decisions that were made, but it fell on deaf ears. That you know these recommendations still are are indicating you know things that we just know are not good for us. We wrote uh, in MedPage today, published an op-ed uh, that came out a month ago, which was an open letter to President Biden, uh, talking about exactly what happened and that we really need to make it clear to the general population from a cost perspective and certainly a health perspective uh, that reducing our consumption of sugar is front and center in terms of keeping us healthy. And it's also in terms of of impacting the healthcare system in this country. I mean, if we reduce the level of sugar intake, then we probably would reduce the level of various forms of maladies that are out there that people seek medical attention for. And I, you know, I was recently speaking to a doctor, and talking about the fact that we know that right this minute, and COVID has literally highlighted this in some ways, but not as much as it should have. You know, we are sitting at a time right now in 2021 where we're close to 350,000 nurses short in America. By 2024, we're going to be somewhere around 150,000 doctors short, 500,000 nurses short. Why? Because over the last decade, you know, we've interested our youth and uh, two other generations in the, trying to be internet stars or rock musicians or rappers or musicians rather than go to med school. You know, med school enrollments are down. 
Um, nursing school enrollments are almost non-existent. We're aging out a population. And within the next two to three years, we're going to be stuck in a situation here in the United States of America, one of the richest nations on the planet, where we're going to be doling out health care, not because it's not available, but yeah, because it's not available. There, well, you go to the hospital, you may sit for five hours waiting because there's only two nurses on the staff. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems ridiculous to me that if, when we're talking about trying to figure out a way to at least provide universal health care for a nation, one thing we should start with is trying to make every member of the nation more responsible for their individual healthcare footprint. Well, I think it gets to the, the, uh, the notion of the healthcare system. The reality is that our so-called healthcare system has nothing to do with health. Sick it care. has to do with illness. It's an right. illness care system. So it's not about health. It's not about keeping people healthy. And there's very little care, caring uh, involved. It's, it's pretty much uh, formulaic. You have high blood pressure. Here's the pill. See you later. And uh, you know the notion of intervening before a person is sick uh, is really very contrary to the to the model of, of Western medicine. Reality is that's how mes- medicine has been practiced, or health. You know, this is provision of healthcare uh, from time immemorial until just recently. So, I think when we shift over to the notion of being uh, proactive as opposed to reactive. We're gonna. It'll be cost effective. Uh, it'll be uh, certainly more humane. Uh, and I think, it, 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 to your point of lack of nurses and doctors, if people are healthy, there won't be as much of an uh, uh, you know, impact on the need for healthcare practitioners as there would be uh, when when people are sick. We absolutely know uh, what can keep people healthy. Uh, the problem is you're not going to see an ad on the evening news uh, for somebody recommending a low carb diet and getting out and getting some exercise, making sure you get eight hours of sleep every night. No one's going to sponsor that because it's not proprietary. All you see are uh, ads and correct me if I'm wrong, how I can lower my A1C below seven because I take this drug or I can treat my psoriatic arthritis by taking this monoclonal antibody drug. That's what peppers the airwaves. This direct to consumer advertising is profoundly effective and it focuses on treating diseases that have already manifest. It reminds me of a quote from the Neijing, the Yellow Emperor in the 4th century BC, who stated that prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom. To cure a disease after it has manifest is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging weapons when the war has already begun. So we really got to emphasize the notion of keeping people healthy it's the right thing to do as a doctor, as a healthcare provider, uh, and it's certainly going to be cost effective as well. I mean, it just seems to me, though, that with the, the exact same amount of emphasis on marketing the, you know, sick care drugs, I mean, it, it just would seem all we need is just one, one billionaire to decide, you know what, I'm going to start marketing the healthy things. Prepackaged healthy meals so that, you know, if, if I take, take a choice out of me. I don't have to go to the, the grocery store and try to pick down each aisle and try to navigate what might or might not be healthy. I can just order it online and boom, comes to my front door. Cook A, B, C. That's breakfast, lunch, and dinner if you want. I happen to be just a breakfast and dinner or a late, late breakfast and dinner eater. 
but two meals a day is enough for me. I think that's part of another problem that we have in this country is that we just still can't seem to get away from the idea of consumption, overconsumption. That's right. I, I would like to meet the person who invented three meals a day. I mean, <laughs> I cannot imagine our hunter-gatherer forebears stopping for lunch you know and oh it's lunchtime we have to stop and eat give me a break you know you, something i've been talking when we were little little rodents on the savannah we weren't running around in the middle of the day out on the savannah looking for food there were lions and tigers and bears oh my out there so you know you ate something early in the morning before they woke up and you got something early early or a latter part of the evening before they went to sleep and we were probably only eating maybe once Twice, once a day, every now and then, twice a day, every now and then, but not three times a day. Who came yeah. up with that thing? Well, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you're quite aware all, all that has been written about both intermittent fasting and full-on fasting. We we did um, an online uh, fast with our our group, um, uh, I guess it was already about a year ago. Time goes by during the time of COVID. And uh, interestingly... Um, you know, we were asking people, well, what did you experience? You know, clarity, uh, I was hungry, on and on. And what many people reported back was they they uh, reported a greater sense of gratitude. Gratitude, not just that we have food, but uh, an overall sense of gratitude is engendered in, in uh, when we fast. And, you know, fasting is, is a part of every major religion. Right now, as you and I have this conversation, we're in the middle of the fast of Ramadan. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jewish fast of Yom Kippur, Jesus fasting uh, 60 days prior to his public ministry. Uh, this is something that, you know, is a way that we can reconnect. We can talk about the biochemical mechanisms that are activated during fasting, how it turns on autophagy so we can get rid of damaged cellular debris, if you will, et cetera. There are a lot of things reestablishing insulin sensitivity. But, uh, you know, we, we bombard ourselves with food, you know, day and night, and that's not how our bodies are designed to respond. We're designed to respond to times of, of food scarcity, a bit of a stress, we call that hormesis, and times of, of food plenty. So we have to recognize uh, that we can, we can activate some really powerful health-restoring uh, processes in our bodies by not eating. Yeah, you know, it's one of the things I've I've literally tried to practice now for almost uh, this entire COVID, but, but two years before that, you know, I, I literally started intermittent fasting and, you know, I I, I eat a early, early dinner, I want to call it that, or a, a second meal of the day, try to eat that no later, I hate eating past 6 p.m. And then I won't consume anything else until 10 to 11 o'clock in the morning the next day. I try to make sure that I get at least 14 hours, 12 to 14 hours between my end of the day meal and my beginning of the day meal. And sometimes I'll go without even grabbing that early day meal. And I'll just did a cup of green tea. And that's been satisfactory for me. I haven't lost any weight. Um, you know, I maybe lost maybe two pounds or so, but I'm exercising a lot. Um, but that seems to keep me on track. Um, let's talk a little bit. Well, I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back because knowing your medical history, which uh, you know that I do, Yes. Uh, I, I think that's a really, really good idea for you because, uh, you know, based upon, I mean, uh, what goes on with respect to your medical uh, issues, uh, I think it, I would recommend that, you know, uh, in a similar situation because you're doing the right thing and, uh, you know, along with other types of supplements, et cetera. But I think it's, it's right on target for you. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the grain brain. I, I don't want you to give it up because I want people, first off, where can people go get it right now? 
Oh, Grain Brain is is uh, at all the online retailers, bookstores around the globe, 34 languages. So I guess uh, sure. there's, you know, the major languages are covered. And I have to admit, I have, uh, whenever it co comes out in another language, I, I get a copy, I put it up on the shelf behind me, and I cannot identify some of these languages. I mean... <laughs> I would I would get up to show you, but I'm wearing shorts right now. So that's, no, that's okay. That's, that's so good. professional. <laughs> that's all right. No, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the the highlights or you know some tips that you give in the book, especially for people who are now tuning into you know free thinking and thinking. Hmm, I, I really like this guy. Maybe I should like the look in the Woody. Oh, he's, he's I would. That, that would make me feel good if your viewers like me. Um, yeah. So I, I. But rather than like me, I, I'm. My hope is that uh, there's knowledge being. Transcribed here, that uh, is empowering because you know the the word doctor doesn't mean healer; it means teacher. And you know my mission has been to learn as much as I could, try out as much as I can, see what works, and then give that information out to anyone who's going to listen. You know the primary pillars of Grain Brain uh, that was five books ago uh, were really the notion that sugar is disruptive towards health. We need to avoid sugar and refined carbohydrates and ultra processed foods and really be aware of the fact that there is a lot to uh, gluten that you need to know about. And so since Grain Brain came out, you know, the next uh, area of my interest was the gut bacteria. And I wrote a book called Brain Wash. And it really focused on how what we eat nurtures or threatens the gut bacteria and the role that that plays in terms of immunity and inflammation. And, um, you know, most recently, uh, a, a book that we wrote came out uh, just a little over a year ago. It's called Brain Wash. And that book, uh, I had the, the, the most wonderful experience in my life uh, to uh, be able to write a book with our son, who is an internal medicine doctor. And that's a book about decision making and how our lifestyle choices actually influence our decision making. You know, we've, we've thought that our decision making, you know, those are our choices. But when we make uh, good decisions, it fosters better decision making uh, in the future. And it all centers on inflammation. That inflammation as a process locks us into short-term reward, self-centered, impulsive decision making, as opposed to when our bodies are less inflamed, then we can make decisions that look at the future, that look at what's best for ourselves in the long run, and yes, look at what's best for the other guy as well. So empathy is fostered when we have reduced inflammation in our bodies. So, you know, especially during these troubled times, the notion that our decisions can affect another person as it relates, for example, to COVID and transmission of COVID and doing the right thing, is really kind of important information to have. And people don't understand that these right choices, you know, don't just affect you from an obesity standpoint or from a, a um, diabetic standpoint, but this also affects when you talk about, you know, the clarity that one gets sometimes from fasting or, you know, from reducing some of the, you know, detrimental effects of some of the things that we actually intake from sugars and things. I mean, um, you know, this helps people with mental health, mental health issues also, right? From depression. To yeah, that's right. And uh, Austin Perlmutter, our son, uh, just published uh, on MedPage today. Uh, and also, I think it's in, in one of the Frontiers journals. We'll, we'll put it on our website. 
uh, this relationship between immunity and depression. Uh, and uh, he has become one of the most popular writers in psychology today about this topic, about depression and mood and how they're affected by things like inflammation, how COVID has impacted that. And, you know, I was thinking about something a moment ago when you were talking about obesity, that um, Gary Taub's uh, uh, medical writer uh, said famously that we're not obese because we eat too much. We eat too much because we're obese. And that is really, when you deconstruct that, realizing that obesity, because obesity is an inflammatory disorder, affects our decision-making and makes us less able to make then better decisions moving forward. And it speaks back to me and to Austin uh, in this very room where I'm sitting right now, uh, about a year and a half ago, we decided to write a book that we were kind of laboring over what is it that goes wrong in the doctor-patient relationship. You know, we as healthcare providers, we do hopefully the best we can to learn as much information as we can. Then we do our very best to transmit that information to the patient. It's a three-step process. You learn, you give out the information, but step three is then we hope the patient will act on that information. You know, Mrs. Jones, I'm going to put you on a special diet. You know, Mr. Jones, I think you need to get out and walk every day. You know, Mr. Smith, I, I think eight hours of sleep is really going to be in your interest. But what we find is that that is where the system breaks down the most. That about 80% of the information that we give to patients across the board is not acted upon. We've never looked at that. Uh, we've only looked at it through the lens of blaming patient. You know, they didn't follow the diet. They didn't get any exercise. What in the heck is wrong with this patient? And I'm not looking forward to having them back in my office because every time I see them, they're worse and worse. They've gained weight. The blood sugar is up. You name it. And what I'm saying is we blame the patient. And what we realize is that that is wrong. It's time to stop that blame game because for sure we give that patient a diet, he or she's going to go home, look in the mirror and say, what's wrong with me? The doctor screamed at me today. I can't do it. Something is wrong with me. And we realized that the decision-making apparatus in that person's brain has been hacked. And that's why they can't make good decisions. It isn't their fault. It's time to stop. Remember back in the 80s, stop the insanity. What I don't know what they're promoting with that one. Mm -hmm. but we've got to stop blaming people because they don't have the tools to make these right decisions. They're in a spiral. Maybe it's a death spiral. And often it is a death spiral. Um, you, but then I, I have to ask you, and I, again, I'm probably going to get in trouble when I make this statement, but it's like now we live in a society where you can't even question a person. You can't really question their choices. I mean, and, and forgive me when I explain it this way, but it's like, you know, there are people who are, are celebrities that, um, uh, that are a little obese, that do have weight problems. I mean, we take a look at the, the 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 guy who was sitting in the White House for the last four years, who chows down on a McDonald's burger and a and a diet coke. Come on, are you kidding me? And if you say a word about his weight, or you say a word about his choice of drinking that diet coke, then you are somehow politically incorrect for even having questioned them. So. And we divert that away from the politics and we divert it towards the science. Welcome back. And we simply indicate that obesity, as an example, is associated with increased risk, doubling your risk of Alzheimer's disease, 
quadrupling your risk of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and so we make it very clear that these are risks for decisions uh, for uh, outcome, uh, cancer as well, uh, that can take your life. Now, uh, here is the information. I hit the ball back over the net to your side of the court. Now, what are you going to do about it? If you're uh, comfortable with the, those issues, then fine. There's no need to carry on the conversation any further. Go about your life and hope for the best. Uh, but the film director, James Cameron, famously said that hope is not a strategy. So if you are looking for a strategy for better health and reduce disease risk, then we do have to have this conversation about your weight, your blood sugar, your uh, blood pressure, uh, your lack of ability to get a good night's sleep, whatever is the parameter, oftentimes there are many, and then talk about creating a plan to get you back on track if that is your choice. This isn't about fat shaming. This is about inviting people to participate in regaining their health. And it's never too late, correct, Doc? I mean, you know, persons who suffer from some issues right now, you know, they say, well, this guy recommending this stuff for me, but it's too late for me. It's not going to work, so screw it. I'm okay. But it's never too late, correct? Never too late. I mean, that whole notion of never too late was uh, emblazoned on my brain when the first research in humans, which was in the late 1990s, came out indicating that we have the ability to grow new brain cells. And there was a, a, a huge rejection of that notion. Though we had identified it in rodents, we identified it in primates, the fact that humans could grow new brain cells was off the table. And uh, when it was finally identified in humans, it was uh, rejected and finally it was published in the journal Nature. Uh, by Dr. Erickson. And uh, then he identified the fact that humans are growing new brain cells in their 90s. You know, we were told 18 was the cutoff. Remember, uh, you you get new brain cells to about 18, and then every beer you would drink, you would lose 40,000. Right. Whatever was the number, remember? Right. Uh, but we, we now recognize that this process of neurogenesis, growing new brain cells, is something that pers perseveres throughout our lifetimes, even into our 90s. So it is clearly, number one, it's never too late. And number two, as it relates to neurogenesis, we fully understand how lifestyle choices influence that activity. For example, exercise is a powerful upregulator of the growth of new brain cells in your brain. Who wouldn't want that? Absolutely. And so now, you know, uh you have a brand new book coming out now also, right? About reducing your gas? About yeah, yeah. Your gas? Uh, the, the book, uh, Uric Acid, and uh, it's it. this is February uh, of next year. I know this is supposed to be evergreen, but what, what the heck. Um, the book is called Drop Acid. Which, and what does that mean? It, it means we really have to concentrate on reining in our uric acid. As I mentioned before, you know, you you get your uric acid level when you go to the doctor and have a comprehensive panel. And typically in years gone by, we've looked at uric acid, it's U-R-I-C, uh, in the context of gout or kidney stones. We now recognize it is a powerful player uh, as it relates to metabolic disease, diabetes, uh, weight gain, uh, trouble with our blood fats, our cholesterol, HDL, LDL, uh, inflammation, immune function. So, uh, it's a new dawn. And, you know, much as you were uh, asking me early on in our time together today about how uh, challenging and iconoclastic my theories were about sugar and gluten way back in the day, 
these uh, issues with uric acid, I think, are, are really on the very crest of the wave as well. But uh, we're beginning to see a lot of uh, medical research coming out. A lot of doctors are talking about reining in your uric acid. So what we, what we talk about in drop acid are the dietary strategies, both uh, that are associated with raising uric acid, which we don't want, uh, as well as how we modify our diets to lower uric acid, which is the goal. And that is, uh, you know, a powerful tool then for people who said, you know, I really want you to know that I have done my very bre- best in terms of diet or exercise, or whatever, and I still can't lose weight. I still can't get my blood sugar un- under control. For these people and others, this might be the very important missing metabolic link that we've now identified. Wow. Well, that book's coming out soon, so I'm going to make sure people will go. If people wanted to get more information from you, you mentioned a website earlier. You didn't say what it was. Tell your website. Oddly enough, uh, Dr. Perlmutter's website is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Got it. Well, Doc, let me, before we're almost out of time, but I have one big question for you. What kind of health advice do you wish that you had received when you were younger? Uh, I think perhaps the most important thing I would tell myself if I could speak to my younger self would be, don't sweat the small stuff. You know, I have had, as many people have over lifetimes, gotten, you know, really involved with being concerned about this, that, and the other. And, you know, in the long run, it doesn't matter as much as you might think it does at the time. So I think that would have alleviated a lot of stress in my life. I would have uh, definitely focused more in my younger years on getting enough sleep, recognizing how important that is. Um, I would have flossed my teeth more. (laughs) It took me many years to get into that habit. And I probably would have been more careful about the sun exposure I got uh, in my younger years, which was really, really aggressive. And, uh, you know, now, of course, I I recognize what that uh, can do. Uh, And so I would have been so much more careful about sun exposure in the day. From a dietary standpoint, you've been on this mantra for most of your entire life, correct? Well, not as a younger man, that's for sure. You know, in, in my, uh, I, I was uh, in my teenage years and uh, early adulthood, not anywhere near as dialed in. I, it would obviously have been good for me to have been more aware. But, you know, I, following the science in those days, it was all about low fat, wasn't it? You know, even when I started practicing medicine, the, the mantra was low fat diet is what you want. The problem with low fat several problems is that we need fat. Our bodies thrive when we eat good fats. And that's, you know, obviously an important qualifier, but the default when we cut fat out of our diets for calories was carbs. So um, I I wish I would have known about that, but indeed uh, the science was telling us that fat was the enemy. And in fact, my early books parroted that information that we now know that science was highly influenced by industry, sugar industry. I mean, that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association and then followed up in the New York Times how influential uh, the sugar industry was in terms of new uh, JAMA and also even the New England Journal of Medicine telling us that we should cut fat and that sugar was okay. It isn't okay, despite uh, you know what even uh, we hear today. We've got to be so uh, careful about the amount of sugar in our diets. It's not good for us. Do you think, I mean, the, the the food industry, do you think more doctors are going to come aboard and understand that that's the mantra that they should be repeating nowadays rather than, you know, the fact that 10% of sugar is still good for you? 
Montel, I would I would tell you that I wish that were the case, but even as we have this conversation today, there's precious little education that doctors get or even have gotten in medical school uh, in terms of nutrition. It's not part of the playbook. The playbook is uh, responsiveness to a patient's illness by writing a prescription, which is the coin of medical currency. So I, I wish that were the case. You know, if you become a veterinarian, you get two years of nutrition because it matters what animals eat in terms of their health and in terms of even treating their illnesses. You know, I, I'll never forget, I took, my wife and I took our dog to the vet because he was losing his hair. I've actually written about this in one of my books. And the first question we were asked was, well, what are you feeding Tico? What are you feeding him? And I was stunned because I, I, my wife answered the question because that, that's, I, I don't, I don't buy the dog food, but um, I sat there in disbelief thinking that what would happen if doctors were to ask patients that when they right. walked in the room, okay, what are you eating? And yet we should, it's that important for all the reasons that you and I have talked about today, including the microbiome, including gut permeability, immune regulation and inflammation. So it's really vitally important that we have the discussion about nutrition as it relates to human health and preventing disease. And also importantly, be open to the notion that over time, the recommendations will change. And that's a good thing. Uh, as we learn more about nutrition science relating to humans, we should welcome the fact that the, the narrative is going to change. Nowadays, there's a huge emphasis on dietary fiber. We never talked about it before. You know, we talked about it in the context of constipation. Well, eat more fiber, then it'll draw fluid water into your gut. And you'll have better bowel movements. No, dietary fiber is how we give nutrition to our gut bacteria. That's why it's really important. The level of dietary fiber in, in Western cultures compared to our ancestors is incredibly low. So, you know, the, the notion of being okay with a changing narrative from, uh, from science, I think is, takes a little bit of work that, you know, you told me something differently five years ago, and now you've changed what you're saying. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a good thing that I think finally the world is going to, especially our nation is going to get back on track and believing science is real rather than you know, something made up. I can't thank you enough, sir, for being a part of Free Thinking Today with Montel. And I know that all of our viewers are going to love the opportunity to hear you. And again, they can go up on drperlmutter.com to find out more information. The Grain Brain is out right now. Another book that you'd like to promote, is it The Brain Wash? Brain Wash. We're really proud of that. New York Times bestseller right out of the box. And uh, again, you know, I had the opportunity to write a book with my son. How, how cool is that? Uh, that's a really important book because uh, so much about what we're seeing play out in the world right now as it relates to, you know, the pandemic, as it relates to the planet and climate change really is focused on our decisions. And that's what the book is all about. So let me say to you, Montel, thank you for having me today. I'm just so happy to uh, reconnect with you uh, after all these years. It's really good to see you. Good to see you too, sir. You take care of yourself. Stay well. Love that family of yours. You know, I know you got your vaccine, right? Uh, both, yes, that's correct. Got both of mine too, so we're going to keep promoting the heck out of that. But stay safe, sir, and I'd love to have you back anytime you want. You always got a home here. Thank you again. Good to see you. Good to see you. You take care. Bye-bye now. Make sure you tune in to the next Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments.